0: In planning the, the quarter uh, passages to preach on, I, I decided to, to, to veer off for one week. I know Ryan preached last week out of Ephesians. This week, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah just for a, a one-week message. And I chose this passage because I'm sure it's familiar to many as it is to myself. But I chose it because I think we need to pause occasionally, even just for an hour, and consider again the God to whom we worship. And, and when we come to a topic like this, holiness, it sometimes brings out all sorts of fears. The topic of holiness, it exposes. And so I come before you this morning, church family, not as a man who's perfectly holy, far from it, but who's been exposed by the word of God in my life. And I, I bring that same passage so that God can do his work in your life as well. And we're going to look at the holiness of God. That's what we're going to talk about this morning Revelation 4.8, let me read this passage. says, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. There's so much inside of me, my, my very wiring as a human that seems to go against this very idea that we need to worship God and to see him as best. We really want everyone to say that about us, that for everyone to say how, how great we are, that we are the best. We want the focus to be on us. But in Revelation 4, they're spending their energy on worshiping God. Is that what God expects of us to? seems difficult. It seems even tedious uh, for those who live in 2019. I mean, how can I do this and still have time for Instagram, Facebook? Perhaps you've even begun to think, well, there's so much good in me. I'm not, I'm not doing so bad here. I'm, I'm making good strides. There are talents in me that, that should be seen by people. Maybe it's not even huge, big things, but just normal life. You're sitting here, and you're a mother or a lawyer or a teacher or a boss or a computer analyst, and you want people to know that you're, you're doing good, you're experienced, and you're good at what you do. Have you ever found yourself in a conversation with someone and you want them to know something about yourself, so you ask a question in a way, or make a statement in a way, so that then you can reveal that about yourself to them. You can, you can show them how, how great you are. Ask me what college I went to, ask me. Or, or no, wait, don't ask me what college I went to. You don't wanna know. Same type of question there, isn't it? Ask me where I just went on vacation. Do you know who I'm related to? Do you know where I'm from? You don't want to know where I'm from. The focus on us. But here's an exercise. How many of you would like to join me up here this morning and confess to this assembly all of your sins? Everything, the dark stuff, the things that no one really wants to know. Now, there are obvious reasons why this may not be a wise thing to do, but let's say it's possible, would you be reluctant to do so? Let's forget about the big group, though. Let's. How about just you and another person? Are you even able to sit down with another believer and confess your sins one to another? We're gonna look at that in James in a few weeks, Lord willing. Maybe you're not able to do this simply because you don't want the other person to think less of you. And not. Not thinking that you are great and not thinking that you're the best. Does it make sense to you to say that God knows what's best, that He is best, that His ways are holy, righteous, and perfect, and He expects us to trust Him, to worship Him, to love Him, to follow Him, to serve Him with all of our lives? Does this make sense to you? Is this reasonable? That's the question as we come to this section of Scripture in Isaiah 6, just the first eight verses of Isaiah 6. The question that Isaiah will ask anyway as we look through, if you haven't turned your Bibles, I want you to do that now. Isaiah chapter 6. If you're using a Bible that's provided, it's on page 534. And the reason why I give page numbers is if you're not familiar with the Bible, I don't want you to be embarrassed as you turn to it. 534 and In your Bible, the big number is the chapter, and we're going to be in chapter 6. The small numbers are the verses, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. I know your bulletin said 1 through 7, but that was my mistake. We're going to look 1 through 8, and if you don't have a Bible, please take that one with you, and you're going to need it open this morning because what I'm going to share comes from the Bible. So if you don't have it open, you're going to be lost. So Isaiah chapter 6, follow with me as I read verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. Would you join me in prayer? encourage you to pray for me, and I'll pray for you as we get started. God, we come before your throne this morning realizing that we approach you as sinful people, that we're unworthy to be in your presence, and it's only through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ, that we can come before you. Father, we ask that you would bless this time, that you would speak to your people. I pray that your word would be honored in this time here this morning, that you would receive all the honor and glory as we we partake in the preaching of your word. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned earlier, there is no outline and that's because I was out of town and I didn't email it to the secretaries in time. So I have an outline for you. So if you wanna jot it down, I'll walk through the four points that I have and then I'll hopefully be clear to to walk you through those four points as we preach through it. But the four points that we're gonna look at in God's holiness is first, God's holiness overwhelms us. God's holiness overwhelms us. Second, God's holiness strips us. Third, God's holiness heals us. And fourth, God's holiness sends us. So God's holiness overwhelms us, strips us, heals us, and sends us. So first point, God's holiness overwhelms us, verses 1 through 4. This passage begins with the Lord. Isaiah gives a very brief account of the incredible scene that's unfolding before him, and the description leaves more unsaid than said. But but the more you study God, the more you come to understand that the description of his majesty in this Vision was probably so otherworldly that it was difficult to find the right words to describe God in human terms. And what's his description? He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The Lord is sitting upon a throne. He is majestic. He is in control. he's sovereign. This is a picture of power. He is high and lifted up. This shows the transcendence of God. When we speak of the transcendence of God, we're talking about that sense in which God is above and beyond us. He is, he is far above his creation. He's not restrained by anything. <clears throat> he is high above the world and has absolute power over the world. And transcendence describes God in his consuming majesty, his exalted loftiness. And he says here, the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, when a king had won a great victory and defeated an enemy, the king would walk through the battleground and take with, with his men the spoils from the victory. But the greatest recognition for the king when he was victorious was signified when he would have a piece of the defeated king's robe cut off and then sewn upon the bottom of his train of his own robe. And for a king in the Old Testament times, the length of his robe or the train of his robe would therefore be a sign or an indication of his greatness. In other words, the longer his train, the more victories he had won, the more kings he had defeated. And Isaiah says for us this morning, friends, the train of his robe filled the temple. Our God wins, friends. The bad guys lose. And what dominates the description is the glory and presence of our Lord. He is high and he's lifted up and the train of his robe declares his might. In verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he, he flew. What exactly are seraphim? The word seraphim means burning ones. And when you read this, in other parts of scripture is talking about fiery servants. But here, and only here, is talking about a special order of angelic beings. These seraphim hovered over the throne as guardians. They were God's supernatural secret service team. But while they use two wings to guard the throne of God from others, they use their other four wings to guard themselves from God. One pair of wings are covering their face. This tells us that not even his created angels can gaze at the face of holy God. It would be the same as if we were to stare at the sun. Our eyes could not handle it. And so the creatures cover their face. For their own sake, because they cannot bear the burning glory, which is the holiness of God. In Exodus, we read of Moses, who who coming to a burning bush that wasn't consuming himself, became surprised, confused even. And he he had to look closer. And as he walked closer, God says, do not come near. Take off your sandals of your feet, for the place in which you're standing is holy ground. And the same seraphim here and now are in holy ground above God's throne. And they didn't have sandals to take off like Moses. They had wings to cover their feet. And their whole posture is to shield themselves from the consuming holiness of God. A.W. Tozer was right. The greatest need of the moment is is that lighthearted superficial religious to be struck down with a vision of God high and lifted up and with his train filling the temple. Friends, this is what we need here this morning. In verse three, and one called to the other and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The seraphim were crying out, holy, holy, holy. The word holy here means separate. It literally means cut. It means to be separate, above, beyond, exalted, infinitely above us. It's talking about the otherness of God. It means when you see his holiness, you realize he's beyond and beyond and he's above and above. God is holy. He's totally different than us. He is separate than his creation. And God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. It it, it is more than God being moral. One, One commentator wrote, God's holiness means that he is separate from everything that is sinful, utterly removed from the world and glorious in majesty. And the seraphim used the word holy three times in succession. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. In his well-known book, The Holiness of God, and if you haven't read this, you need to, R.C. Sproul says this. Only once in the sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. Not that he is merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, love, love. Or mercy, mercy, mercy. Or wrath, wrath, wrath. Or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, holy, holy. That the whole earth is full of his glory. It's significant, friends. There's no Hebrew word for very. And there isn't these superlatives that we commonly use in English, like greatest or best or deepest. So it's repeated three times for us for emphasis. We read it in other places in scripture where the Lord says, truly, truly, I say to you. And it's this way of emphasizing that what he's saying is especially true. But here in Isaiah six, it's repeated three times. And I don't want you to miss this. God is saying to us this morning, this is of great importance. He is holy, and he deserves our worship. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. And glory is an incredible word. It's important for us to know that God's glory is, is outshining of all that he is. Glory has to do with weight or, or heaviness. We looked at this when we looked at 1 Samuel, the Hebrew word kabod, heavy. Since the weight of something frequently reflects its worth, Glory has come to mean that which gives something or someone honor or made him worthy respect, and the glory of God is Him declaring His infinite worth to all of creation. And the holiness of God is the unfading value of God or the deep-rooted worth of our Almighty God. None of us would naturally, though, describe the earth as being full of God's glory. We would naturally think it's just too full of hate or war, or crime. But the seraphim did not define the condition of the earth based upon the evening news. They looked at the world through the lens of God's holiness and saw that God's righteousness will one day be vindicated in the world. So even with sin, sorrow, and suffering in the world, they were able to say, the whole earth is full of his glory. And holiness is arguably the most neg- neglected attribute of God in the contemporary church. If asked to describe God, many Christians would mention his power or his love or wisdom or a list of other attributes before they would mention holiness. Yet in Scripture, holiness is God's central, defining, and foundational attribute. In fact, the word the Bible uses to describe God more than any other word is the word holy. And God is so holy that everything associated with God becomes holy. The scripture speaks of God's name, his word, his law, his promises, his works, his ways, his wrath, all of these things as holy. R.C. Sproul has said, any attempt to understand God apart from holiness is idolatry. And he's right, because holiness is what makes God, God. His moral glory, his distinctiveness from his creation, the perfection and beauty of his character. But if we're honest, we tend to have mixed feelings about holiness. There's a strong sense in which we are at the same time attracted to it and repulsed by it. Something draws us toward it while at the same time we want to run away. Part of us yearns for holy while part of us despises it. We can't live with it, but we can't live without it. Jesus Christ, the incarnate Holy One, no longer walks on earth, but his threatening power of holiness is still felt. Sometimes it's transferred like Moses coming down from the Mount Sinai, and the Jews fled in terror with the bright, dazzling face of Moses. And the same is true today when people get uncomfortable in the presence of other Christians. I know some of you have experienced this. You've shared with me at work the, the conversations you have. As a pastor, I, I tend to have this just because of my name, this experience of a standoffish behavior, just because I'm a pastor. Just this last week, while my wife and I were on vacation, there was a, a shared grill at the place where we were staying a few nights, and I head down to cook at the grill because that's what men do. Amen? Men cook steak and stand around the grill. And begin to talk with other men there. But when you don't know someone, you know where the conversation goes, right? Eventually it goes to, so, what do you do? And I realize in that moment, this is the death of this conversation. <laughs> well, I'm a pastor. Oh, okay. Crickets. <laughs> I mean, they were cursing the last five minutes, and now there's Silence. And I'm not saying that they see my holiness, although I pray I live a holy life. But they recognize enough of the the word Christian or pastor that we represent God, someone who is wholly different than them. Holiness provokes silence, but also holiness provokes terror. Not that they're terrified with me in any way, but they're terrified with God. Yet we live in a modern culture that is absolutely against the idea of a holy God. Absolutely against the idea of a God who is threatening. People know it, and yet they run from those ideas. They can't stand with those ideas. They can't stand the idea that God is pure, who has pure eyes and, and, and cannot behold iniquity, who is absolutely will not tolerate any evil at all. A God who sends people to hell. A God who descends on Mount Sinai in thunder and lightning. So even if an animal touches the mountain, they're put to death. People don't like this. And yet they know there's truth to it. They think that it's so primitive and unmodern. And yet in the presence of of any set-aside human, like a Christian or a pastor, they're threatened by it. And it only seems logical if there's a God at all to even approach. A real God would have to be threatening and traumatic. He would have to be different than the creation. Of course God is holy. He would have to be holy. Or he wouldn't be God at all. And we see the trauma of God's holiness in the New Testament. In the Gospel of Mark in chapter 4 with Jesus calming the seed. Do you remember that story? They're out in the water and the storm comes upon them and they become so afraid because they think that they're going to drown. And where's Jesus in the boat? He's sleeping. And they cry out to him that Jesus would, would, would wake up and save him. And in Mark 4, verse 39, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? When they realized whose presence they are in, they are absolutely terrified. They're terrified because they see his holiness, his glory. Isaiah writes for us here in verse 4, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. God comes down to Isaiah, and he's terrified. He sees the magnitude of God. And here is Isaiah going into the temple. He's going into the service of worship. And the reason he's so shocked is because the last person he actually thought he would meet was God. Who ever thought that, that I'd actually meet God in a worship service? you expect to meet some of your friends and all sorts of other people, but God, God was just a concept until this moment. And when he showed up, God became a reality. And God began to rearrange things in Isaiah's life. I was talking with someone in our church family a few weeks ago, and I asked simply when they became a Christian, they said, well, When I was a kid, I came forward, I said a prayer, that the actions of a Christian. So do you mean when I understood the message for the first time? Or do you mean the day I came to believe? Or do you mean the day when I finally realized if God is who he says he is, then my entire life is going to flip upside down. And I said, I want to know about that day. I want to know about that day because friends, that is the day when you understand that God is holy. That is a day when the foundations of the thresholds shook at the sound of his voice. That is a day when you're completely overwhelmed with God. The day when God came in to rearrange everything in your life and to make it his own. And the doorposts and thresholds of their life were being shook because of the holiness of God. The day you felt the earth move. You don't forget those days. Have you ever been in an earthquake? A week ago, I would have said no. But on Wednesday, my wife and I woke up at midnight to our rental shaking because of 5.5 magnitude earthquake. I don't forget it. And this is why Isaiah is telling us for our spiritual lives, the day when everything in your life shook because of the holiness of God. Has that happened to you, my friend? Has God ever contradicted you ever? If God has never contradicted you then maybe you aren't worshiping the God of the Bible. Has God completely demolished and re-engineered your agenda for life? Has he changed you? Perhaps you haven't met God before. And perhaps the day today is the day you will See, unless you are overwhelmed by God, you are never going to be able to handle the universe that was created and run by a holy God. Because when you meet a holy God, you never come away the same. You're always changed. And friend, maybe today is the day that God has brought you here. Just like Isaiah unaware that he was going to meet God. God's brought you here to show you who you really are so that he can save you for himself. Perhaps today is the day of salvation. Friends, I want to encourage you, if, if God has pricked your conscience in this way, don't hesitate. but find myself or one of the elders here this morning because we'd love to sit down with you and to show you from the scriptures how you can be saved. Because that's what God's word does to us. It shows us. It it, it overwhelms us with who God is. That's what holiness, his holiness does. But a second thing that God's holiness does, God's holiness strips us. Verse 5. Friends, if there was a, a man of integrity, it was the prophet Isaiah. He was a whole man, an able servant of the Lord. He was viewed by his contemporaries as one of the most righteous men in the nation. He was well-respected. And in verse 5, he says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah sees a glimpse of a holy God, all of his supposed righteousness melts away. And in that quick moment, his self-reliance was gone. In that brief second, he was completely exposed, made naked before the gaze of an absolute standard of holiness. And when Isaiah could compare himself to other men, he was able to endure. But as soon as he was measured against the ultimate standard, he was crushed. He was undone. Why is he, though, talking about lips here? Have you ever wondered that? What about his ears? Or what about his feet? I mean, feet are much uglier than lips. Why the lips? Because Isaiah is a prophet. This chapter is not his call to be a prophet. He's already a prophet. What's a prophet? It's a preacher. He's a pundit, a, a public communicator, oral communicator. He's a speaker. And if you're a, a preacher, a speaker, then the most crucial part of your body is your lips. And as a prophet, your lips are what a dancer's legs are to them or what a pianist's fingers are to them. It's your pride and joy to serve in the way that God has equipped you. See, the, the holiness of God does not lead him to think about his sins. No, it, it leads him to immediately look at his strengths and to find them not to be strengths at all. You see, the holiness of God does not simply lead Isaiah to repent of his sins. Plenty of people repent of their sins who really never understand the gospel. The holiness of God leads Isaiah to repent of his righteousness. His best deeds, his, his pride, his joy in life, the things that he feels that he does best. This is why he's coming apart. This is why he's melting away. This is why he is ruined and undone. Because every human being ever created has a glue that holds them together. Every human being Has something that holds them together, some some basis for a self image. And the holiness of God lays bare the foundation of your soul. It reveals the glue that is holding you together. And when you see the holiness of God, it strips you. It lays you waste those things that once held you together because you now see yourself for who you really are. And for Isaiah, his glue that held him together was his lips, it was his talent for speaking. And the reason he felt he was okay was because he was a good preacher. But now he stands before the incredible beauty of God's holiness, and he knows that he's inadequate. And he finally realizes the sinfulness of his strength, and he cries out, my lips. Until we understand, friends, that even our strengths still condemn us to hell then we will come to God thinking that we can just pull our bootstraps off and muscle into heaven. So you don't not only repent of your sins to be saved. Friends, you have to repent of your righteousness to be saved. What does the scripture say? All of our righteousness is filthy rags. Unless you repent of your righteousness, you will continue to come to him like he's your Lucky rabbit's foot. You'll come to him like he's an insurance policy, but he won't be your Lord. You cannot trust in him as Savior until you repented of your goodness, until you repent of your righteousness. And there's no end run around the holiness of God to get his love, to get his acceptance. And the seraphim here get this. They are worshiping God because of his holiness. There's nothing in it for them. Let me me try to illustrate this. Imagine that you have some family money and somebody comes along and says, I'd like to marry you. And so you get married. Imagine that after the marriage, at some point, your spouse comes to realize that he or she can't really get his or her hands on the family money and then they leave you. How do you feel? Violated? Used? Just a means to the end? An object? You feel like you were not loved for who you were you realize that all of us relate to God like that? How do you think he feels? What do you mean, you say? Well, I've talked to a zillion people, and you've talked to a zillion people who over the years have said things like this. Oh, I used to believe in God. I used to go to church. I, I used to try to serve God, but he didn't come through for me. He didn't let this happen and he let this happen that shouldn't have happened. And I don't understand why he let my life go like that. I asked for this, and he let me down. In other words, he he has this incredible blessings bank account somewhere. I know it's there, but he would never let me get my hands on it. I was really after blessings, not God. The blessings of God are what I wanted. And when I wasn't going to get the blessings, I was out of there. In essence, you married God for his money. He was an object. You wanted his good gifts, but you didn't want him. And the seraphim here are adoring and serving God not on the basis of a cost-benefit analysis, not because God pays off in terms of power or approval or comfort or control or significance or security. They're serving him just because it's due, just because of who he is just because of the beauty of who he is. And for the seraphim, his holiness is not useful. It's beautiful. It's all inspiring. It's life-fulfilling. God is enough for them. And Isaiah, he finally realizes this for the first time. He sees fully the holiness of God, and it tears him apart because it shows him who he really is. As you read Isaiah's response here in verse 5, Woe is me. You realize that he stands before the holiness of God, ashamed of his wretched, prideful, sinful state. And you realize that there is no greater risk than to be seen as we truly are. And Isaiah sees himself as he really is. His distress and horror over his sin is because he stands before a holy God, ashamed. Ashamed. I read a quote from the book, The Hunchback of Notre Dame this week. Notre Dame, sorry. It is from Quasimodo, the main character, and as he takes the beautiful young woman up to the tower of Notre Dame, he looks at her face and he says, I never realized how ugly I was until I saw your beauty. It's like that with God, friends. It is seeing him in all of his beautiful holiness that produces conviction of sin. Isaiah feels the guilt of his sin, of his contrived righteousness. And he's broken because he's seen the king, the Lord, the almighty, the holy God. And in the face of the holiness of God, the whole basis of your existence is now revealed. You realize you're ultimately in it for you. The self-righteousness, the the thing you are sure is what you're really going to make you acceptable is shown what it is, and it will fail you. And it strips you. And you realize who you are now. You realize what you are, and you realize you need help. See, friends, the holiness of God strips you. It makes you undone. But we can't stop there. Because God doesn't leave us there. Third, God's holiness heals us. The holiness of God makes grace real. And here comes the good news, friends. I know you've been looking forward to this. The good news is that you will never find the grace and love of God until you have been shaken at your roots and changed and lifted from your own power and strength until you've been brought out of your own self-righteousness to see God for who he really is. And, and here we have Isaiah, and he's coming apart. Woe is me, for I'm lost, and I'm a man of unclean lips. See, Isaiah felt the darkness, and he felt the hopelessness. And then in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to him, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. In verse 7, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Isaiah had a theoretical theoretical view of sin, and then it became practical. He also had a theoretical view of grace, and now it becomes real and lasting and energizing because it changes him. Years ago, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones gave the illustration for this in one of his sermons, and he said, if somebody comes to you and says, I, I've paid one of your bills, you have no idea how to be excited or how much to be excited It could be that they've paid the postage due on the letter, so you'd be mildly excited. Or on the other hand, maybe they've paid the $40,000 that you owe the IRS. Until you know the actual amount of debt, you don't know how joyful to be. And the size of debt actually determines the magnitude of joy. See, friends, Isaiah had just seen the depths of his sin. He gets into the presence of the holiness of God, and he realized that he is the problem. And my people are unclean, and I'm just one of them. Even my lips, even the best part of me, God, is unclean. It's flawed. It's wrong. It's selfish. It's distorted. It's twisted. And, friends, every single place in the Bible where a human being moves from God as a concept to God as a reality. Every single place in the Bible where people actually begin to move into the presence of the reality of God, they begin to hate themselves because they finally see who they really are, standing before the holiness of God. You know what's wrong with the world right now? Me. No one wants to say that about themselves, though. Management says it's the union. Union says it's the management. Democrats say it's Republicans. Republicans say it's Democrats. Everybody thinks they're the unclean ones. They're the ones who are the problem. Because they haven't experienced what Isaiah has experienced. When a London newspaper years ago posed the question, what's wrong with the world? The Christian thinker G.K. Chesterton repeatedly wrote a brief letter in response to the paper Dear Sirs, I am sincerely, G. K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? Me. I'm the problem. See, Isaiah had never been changed because he never truly understood the holiness of God. He had been enamored with himself, but had never been wounded by God's holiness. Unless you are wounded by the holiness of God, you'll never be healed by the grace of God. He realized he was more wicked than he dared believe and yet more love than he ever dared or hoped that the grace of God could bring. See, friends, God doesn't, he doesn't strip us down to leave us there. He comes and he heals us. I recognize that some of you are worshiping a God that only strips you down, who beats you and condemns you. But a real holy God is different than a demanding God that maybe you were raised with. See, the demanding God you were raised with says, you have to obey, you have to do better, you have to try harder. And then he's never satisfied. And he's standing there waiting to pounce on you and I know this is true for some of you because I've heard it in your words. And you're crushed by a God like that. But friends, that is not a real holy God. A real holy God says you can't obey. You're not even close to obeying. Even your righteousness is as filthy rags. Don't you see you'll never be liberated and understanding my grace and mercy until you see how utterly you need it. The real holy God never shows you your sin except to heal you with his grace. The real holy God never rubs your nose and your flaws except to bring a coal to put on your lips. there's anyone in this room who thinks God is, is just punishing you and just wants you to feel bad by showing your faults and your failures, it's a God of your imagination. Yes, it could be that some of you right now are going through difficult times in which God may be showing you your flaws, but a holy God would never do that except to show you his holy love and his holy grace and to change your life with it. Friends, when, when you're trying to figure out if God loves you, Don't look at your circumstances. Look at the cross. You have to look at the cross. This holy cross is there to bring us healing. Our holy God comes not like a man. He comes perfectly and righteously, and he exposes us, and he shows us who we really are, but he doesn't leave us like that. He heals us and redeems us. This is the gospel, friends. This is what we should be about with our lives. A holy gospel brought to us by a holy God who rescues us out of our filthy righteousness and gives us Christ's righteousness at his expense so that we can be healed and live with him forever. Friends, this is good news. But it doesn't stop there. No last, God's holiness sends us. Friends, the holiness of God renovates and changes us. What happens to Isaiah here? As soon as he's cleansed, as soon as he has been stripped of his filthy righteousness and now realizes the grace of God, what happens to him? Do you see it in verse eight? And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. God says, I have a job for a prophet. I want you to go to a group of people who will never, ever listen to me. I need a prophet to go and spend the next 30 years preaching to a people who only despise and ridicule you. I need a prophet who will go and take a job that will mean for the rest of their life he'll be viewed as a professional failure. He'll be a loser in the world's eyes. Your life will continually be in danger. You'll receive no support, no affirmation. Who wants to go? Any volunteers? And here's Isaiah. Here's his response. Here I am, send me. How? How could Isaiah do this now? Is he just cuckoo? Don't you see the freedom that he experienced for the first time? He isn't afraid to be countered to failure. He knows that he's a failure already and God accepts him. God has made him new. There's new freedom for him. His guilt has taken away. And here's the Holy Father in whose presence even the angels burn in smoke and they have to cover their faces and their feet and yet he loves me. If that God is for me, what can I be afraid of? This whole experience for Isaiah brings real courage and it brings freedom to go and share this news with those who desperately need to hear it? You know, we didn't cover this earlier, but do you know why God reveals Himself to Isaiah here in chapter 6? It's right at the beginning there, verse 1. Because it's the year that King Uzziah died. Why is this significant? Because for 52 years, Uzziah had reigned and now he's dead. And why is this terrifying? When you've had a king who reigns for 52 years, and for most of that, Uzziah was a good king, he peters out at the end really bad. But he's gone after 52 years, and everyone is worried about the future. Everyone is worried about what the future holds. No one knows, and here's Isaiah, who's scared about what will happen, and God comes and says, I want to show you that I'm the real king. Some of you here are living in the year King Uzziah died. You are living in situations where something you have always counted on has been ripped out from underneath you, and you're scared about the future. And you need to look at the face of our holy God who says, if I'm your king, and because of my holiness, and because of the perfect sacrifice of my son, I receive you through grace, you need to go with confidence and serve him. Some of you also are living a guilty life, meaning you are ruled by guilt. You wake up every day feeling guilty for how you live, what you do, what you think. And, friends, these are all forms of self righteousness. If I could just feel guilty enough, then God would accept me. When really, what you need is the cleansing and forgiveness of God. You need to run to the grace of God, which takes your guilt away. Your guilt won't save you. Only Christ's blood will. See, grace is free, but it's not cheap. It costs God his only son. It costs Jesus his very life. But grace also costs the one who receives it. It doesn't cost you in order to receive it. But it costs you once you receive it. The text illustrates this for you. It was a burning coal that touched Isaiah's lips. It was so hot that in verse 6, the seraphim used tongs to bring the burning coal to Isaiah. This teaches us that grace is free, but repentance is painful. And repentance is painful because God not only wants to cleanse you of your past sin, he wants to consecrate you for your future service for him. See, friends, Isaiah says, here I am, send me. He he didn't even know what the mission was. But that didn't matter. Since God had spared him and saved him, Isaiah was willing to do whatever God wanted him to do. And if you really understand what it means to be spared and saved and sanctified, you would say, here I am, send me. Does God really know what's best? Yeah. Is God best? Yes. His ways are holy, righteous, perfect, and he expects us to trust him, to love him, to follow him, to serve him with all of our lives. Charles Spurgeon said, By the love and wounds and death of Christ, By your own salvation, by your indebtedness to Jesus, by the terrible condition of the heathen, and by that awful hell whose yawning mouth is before them, ought you not to say, here I am, send me. Friend, closed mouths lead to an open hell. May we be known as a church, as proclaimers of the truth of the gospel, and maybe we be willing to go as the Lord leads us. Let's pray, Father. We approach Your throne and we give thanks to You. We give thanks to You for Your Word that that teaches us and leads us and guides us and gives us understanding of of who we are. We thank You for the example of Isaiah for us in our lives. We've been reminded yet again this morning of your holiness. Father, I pray for those that are seated here this morning that have no relationship with you. Maybe they've put on the act here at church for a number of years. But they've never been overwhelmed and stripped down. They've never recognized their need for you. Thinking that their, their righteousness, their, their goodness, is what ultimately will save them. When really it condemns them. And I pray that you would bring understanding to them of what your word says. I pray that you would give them faith to believe. To turn from their, their wicked way of life and to turn and trust in you. Father, help us to, to come alongside and, and to pray and encourage and to teach. And Father, as we have as we recognized and reminded again yet of who you are and what you've done to save us, may you use your word to motivate and encourage us to go Out and to share your word with those that we come in contact with. I pray, God, that that not just in our neighborhoods, and our workplaces, but I pray that you would raise up people to leave the comfort of home, to leave the comfort of America, and to go to a foreign land to preach this glorious gospel so that others may hear of your holiness, so that others may hear of, of how you've sent Jesus to die for them. May we be faithful with the task that you've given us. For we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.